2: Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Trump has promised to turn every American cop into a lawless stormtrooper and every domestic police force into a miniature SS. And the volume of his sadistic fascist threats is so large and so loud that when he said this, nobody noticed. He wants to co-opt every law officer in this country, all 700,000 of them, all armed. And in the last 20 years, nearly all of them equipped with military style weapons and vehicles and surveillance equipment and make each and every one of them, in essence, untouchable by law, beholden to no one. Responsible, ultimately, only to the person who liberated them from all legal restraints. Him. Durham, New Hampshire. I am also going to indemnify all police officers. This is a big thing, and it's a brand new thing, and I think it's so important. I'm going to indemnify through the federal government all police officers and law enforcement officials throughout the United States from being destroyed by the radical left for taking strong actions against crime. What do you think he means by indemnify? I'm going to indemnify through the federal government all police officers. Indemnify, relieve of legal liability for their actions. To cut to the chase on this, he means that the next Derek Chauvin, who tortures George Floyd to death on a Minneapolis city street, cannot be arrested, cannot be prosecuted, cannot be sued, cannot be stopped. No legal responsibility or liability for his actions. And if there are no longer any means of stopping the cops from harassing people or beating people or killing people, cops will no longer have any need to even pretend that the people they are harassing or beating or killing are actually guilty of anything. They are then the SS. We already know wide swaths of the nation's 18,000 state and local police forces range from wild conservatism to full-on fascism and white supremacism and QAnon and election denialism and Trumpism. We already know that since 9-11, the nation's police forces have equipped themselves as if all the world's terrorists are going to descend tomorrow morning on, say, Franklin, Indiana, population 25,000 which is why the cops there bought themselves an MRAP, a mine-resistant armored vehicle, just like a dozen other small county police forces did in the last decade in Indiana alone. Moreover, and just as dangerously, they, in big and small towns alike, have trained now generation after generation of rookies who have become veterans and the chiefs and trainers to believe that the purpose of the police is to protect the police. That all civilians are threats because all terrorists pose as civilians. And anybody you don't know personally is a potential terrorist. And I wouldn't be too certain about everybody you do know personally. If most of America has suffered for 22 years now with undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder, nearly all of law enforcement has. We now feed service veterans into police forces, the ones who don't go into the Republican Party, and we now know that they are literally suffering widespread physical brain damage just from using, from handling, the 21st century weapons of war. And now, Trump promises to indemnify them against any legal responsibility for what was the rest of that he said i'm going to indemnify through the federal government all police officers and law enforcement officials throughout the united states from being destroyed by the radical left for taking strong actions against crime yeah i wonder what kind of strong actions trump is talking about Failure to read them their Miranda rights? I don't think so. Shooting them. Killing them in the backseat of cop cars. And again, no longer even needing an excuse like selling cigarettes one at a time or passing a counterfeit 20 or being a 12-year-old carrying a toy gun. How about menacing in a crowded public place, a crowded public place that is crowded because there is a protest in progress, an anti-violence protest an anti-cop city Atlanta protest, an anti-Trump protest, if 700,000 American cops are suddenly out from under the yoke of any laws that could even occasionally hold them accountable for murdering people, what is to stop Trump indemnified cops from shooting into a crowd of unarmed protesters? This, remember, would also be in addition to Trump using the National Guard to quell political protest. This would be in addition to what Trump staffers would not deny, or at least considerations of invoking the Insurrection Act on January 20th, 2025, and leaving it invoked. This would be in addition to Trump's jovial promise to be a dictator, but only on day one. Ha ha, I'm only kidding. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. Indemnified police the Trump waffa. It is one of those moments of impossibility when the same thing is both stunning and to be expected, that Trump could go on a three-day orgy of threats against democracy, quoting Putin and praising dictators like Xi and Kim Jong-un guaranteeing mass deportations and very slowly moving his own Overton window from mass deportations of undocumented immigrants, which is bad enough, to just mass deportations without any qualifiers or categories. He's done all that. He's vowed personal vengeance, dressed up as de-weaponizing the Department of Justice, the one that just indicted the actual president's son, he called the morons he inspired to attack the Capitol on January 6th hostages. He insisted we were all better off under him as president in 2019 with burgeoning unemployment and in 2020 with COVID. And of course, he reiterated his favorite Hitler imagery about immigrants poisoning the blood of the nation and now extending who he means. Now he is promising his audience he will remove the people from Africa, too, and Asia, and framing immigration as a, quote, invasion. This is like a military invasion, he said. Drugs, criminals, gang members, and terrorists, they're taking over our cities. It is stunning, and it is to be expected that he could go through all that, all of which he has either stated before, often word for word, or implied at, or hinted at, and the nation, and even its reporters who are alert to the totalitarianism that Trump is now selling, offering, promising, demanding, that all of them and everybody else, almost everybody, miss this one little fascist rug that really ties the room together. The Trump police. They will no longer be responsible to anybody, But they will have Trump to thank. And it's not like he's going to have to recruit them or train them or equip them or even buy them uniforms. They are in your town, down your street today. They have MRAPs. It is the nature of man not to be taken unaware by the evil and the madness of other men, nor the rapidity and energy with which they will enact that evil, not to be surprised by the sheer banality and mundanity with which they will happily kill millions because they can. It is, rather, the nature of man to receive warning after warning after warning and ignore each one of them, because the default position of almost everybody, the smart people, the dumb ones, the quiet ones, the loud ones, the default position of all of us is it's difficult to imagine things that are not currently happening. We are always warned when the Trumps appear. Hitler tried to overthrow the German government in 1923. They jailed him, He promised more and worse next time. They let him out of jail early for good conduct. The German conservatives needed him for political leverage. He promised if given power, he would persecute the Jews and all the other politicians. They made him chancellor. The British were told by their industrial spies in German factories that Hitler was secretly rearming, especially building planes by the thousands. The British government laughed because that would be against the Treaty of Versailles. And Germany certainly didn't want a repeat of the World War. Our country was warned about Hitler and about the Japanese. I mean, in 1912, General Billy Mitchell predicted war with Japan. In 1924, he predicted the attack on Pearl Harbor. And in retrospect, the only thing Osama bin Laden did not do in advance was tell this country which day he planned to attack on and exactly which buildings he planned to attack The last MSNBC show I did in January 1998 before the Clinton-Lewinsky sinkhole opened up, we had a terrorism and military expert on named Jim Dunnigan who said we were so unprepared Al-Qaeda could drive down Lower Broadway with a truck and have its guys toss handfuls of anthrax out the back door. Lower Broadway. Dunnigan nearly got the address right. We are always warned in large part because one of the aspects of fanaticism, Hitler's fanaticism, the Japanese militarists fanaticism, Trump's fanaticism, it almost always comes attached to unbelievable arrogance and boastfulness and not knowing when to shut the hell up. It's not just that Trump intends to turn the United States into a totalitarian state. It's that he wants everybody to love him for doing this. And therefore, he cannot possibly not tell everybody about it in increasing detail. I mean, indemnifying the police for taking strong actions against crime. The police. Anything else you need to know? His plans, his sadism, his vengeance, the already extant rosters of stormtroopers already ubiquitously spaced across the land— And just ready for that indemnification. Oh, and the symbolism, too. I mean, honest to God, the police. Why do you think they call it a police state? And, of course, besides the warnings we ignore, The Washington Post finally used all the actual words, actually headlined Trump quoting Putin about Biden, and and they put it on page 10... Besides the warnings that we ignore, the other universality of the death of representative government and its replacement by totalitarianism is the willingness, even the eagerness, of the institutions supposedly devoted to and dependent on representative government to signal that, no, they are ready at a moment's notice to screw this silly democracy crap and embrace and serve dictatorship. Yes, sir. I have said... I literally don't know how many times I have truly lost count that at every actual news organization in America, except maybe ProPublica and Democracy Now, I have said countless times that at every news organization in America, they have had the meeting. Now, the quote, news people, unquote, may not have been there at the meeting. They may not have even known about the meeting, but the people who decide where the money goes and who still works there and who doesn't work there anymore, they have had the meeting at which the key deciders sit around and game plan Trump's return to power, and then they ask the essential, vital, life-or-death questions just as you and I do. Only theirs are, as an example, if Trump regains control, how do we at NBC Universal and Comcast defend our profits? even though we have already seen what that did to CNN and what that reinforces at NBC News and ABC and CBS, this kind of dilettante well, we don't actually live in America, so we don't have a dog in this hunt delusion, as if Trump were running to become dictator of Belarus, as if everybody you see on MSNBC lived in a cloud somewhere above the fricca, Still, whenever I say these meetings have taken place at your local, popular, seemingly reliable news organization, I get responses that are, to be polite about it, disbelieving. And yet, now, here it is, in front of your eyes, on one day, what two seemingly neutral pro-freedom of the press outlets do after they hold the meetings. Not just the obvious one. That would have been the New York Times op-ed yesterday titled The Secret of Trump's Appeal Isn't Authoritarianism. Which claims, no, it's not the fact that he wants to turn the country into a totalitarian state and all the masochists and the sadists support that. It's because he's such a moderate. And it was written by the founder of a far right online magazine that spends all of its time pretending not to be a far-right online magazine, and occasionally it will have ultra-leftists attack democracy and Democrats from the left. See, therefore, it's balanced. We have both kinds of music, country and Western. No, no, that was the obvious one, the more insidious one. The lead item in the first newsletter and the lead item on the political website Axios... On the Monday morning of the last full business week of the year, a thousand words by its co-founders, Jim VandeHei and Mike Allen, about Trump, about Trump indemnifying the cops, right? About Trump using the the poisoning of the blood imagery again, about now implying he's going to expel illegal immigrants from Africa or maybe legal immigrants from Africa, or maybe he's going to expel African-Americans about praising Xi Jinping or Kim Jong-un or the Putin quote? Nope. If former President Trump wins next year, he'd have much greater power than in his first term and fewer restraints on carrying out his political agenda. His political agenda. Like William Jennings Bryan's political agenda about not letting mankind be crucified on a cross of gold. or, or, Or more like Mike Trump's political agenda being... Uh, destroying democracy and, and, and getting the cops the permission to kill people he, Trump, does not like. Political agendas. What does Edia mean, political agenda? That's thanks to the trifecta of a more compliant cabinet, government workforce, and Congress. Allen and Vande write in such a bubbly way that it reads like an application for a Trump contract for something. And perhaps it is. What's happening? Trump, if he wins, will enjoy vigorous backing from the vast majority of GOP leaders and rank and file Republicans. His biggest critics will be long gone. I don't remember exactly when I met Mike Allen. 2007, six struck me as one of the weirdest people I have ever met. Vande looked like he was casing the joint. So his biggest critics, they write, will be long gone. Of course, Allen and Vande will still be there. If Trump wins, he will enjoy vigorous backing from conservatives, fearful of being sent to concentration camps to join his biggest critics, who will be long gone. Now, I wrote that last one. I will spare you the rest of this kissing of the fascist ass by Axios, except for the unmissable conclusion. Quote, the bottom line, Trump would have a year's long head start with Congress, yet another way he'd leverage the most sophisticated preparation in history by an out of power party. Not one value judgment, not one moral judgment, not one negative word. And I'm not asking for Axios to endorse the continuation of the Biden administration. I would just like Axios to endorse the continuation of democracy. Also of interest here. So the conservative money did not go looking for Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas made a passive aggressive threat to resign while Bill Clinton was president unless somebody figured out a way to get him more cash. I mean, who was going to pay for his loan for his new RV and thus fill the money from the sky? And a quick quiz. Which mayor of New York got sued again for lying about election workers he just lost a suit to and responded by lying about them again for a third time? And which mayor of New York just said that what makes this city the greatest on the globe is that on any given morning you could wake up to celebrate a new business opening or you could witness a plane crashing into our trade center? That's next on an all-new edition of Countdown. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures, and with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere so if you have a pest problem don't stress it terminix it visit terminix.com to book your appointment online today that's t-e-r-m-i-n-i-x.com to book online today this is countdown with keith overman Post oh, scripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snark, some predictions. Dateline Atlanta, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss were awarded one hundred and forty eight million dollars by a jury after Rudy Giuliani lied about them and slandered them. Giuliani went out after the verdict last week and insisted what he said was true and they were guilty. So they sued him again yesterday, this time seeking not money, but a restraining order preventing him from lying about them again, whereupon he went on Newsmax last night and lied about them again. Looks like their next lawsuit will have to ask the court to epoxy Rudy's lips together. Dateline presidential immunity imaginary land. Two hearings on it now. The Supreme Court wants Trump's answer by 4 p.m. tomorrow on Jack Smith's petition for cert on it. That is, cut to the chase. Clarence, rule now. The U.S. appeals court Smith does not want to wait for on this now says it will conduct its hearing on Tuesday, January 9th. (laughs) line the Supreme Court, and lo, it is a Christmas miracle. Pro publica quoting public and private records that prove that early in the year 2000, Justice Thomas began to muse to people inside the court and out about his little problem. He just wasn't making enough money, and there was that new RV to pay for. He might, he conveyed to Congressman Cliff Stearns, who was Good enough to write a letter about it to Thomas that is in the archives, he would have to resign and go make some money, perhaps. Whatever it was, Clarence thought people would be willing to pay him for besides corruption. Anyway, remember, Bill Clinton was still president in the year 2000, and Clarence had not yet made sure George W. Bush would succeed him. Quote, his importance as a conservative was paramount, Stearns said recently in connection with the ProPublica report. We wanted to make sure he felt comfortable in his job. And he was being paid properly. And lo, there felleth from the sky, people to pay off his RV loan and start flying him around the world and hiring his wife for bullcrap jobs involving insurrection and sedition. And our understanding of Thomas's judicial prostitution changes. He wasn't accepting money to rule in specific ways on specific cases. He was blackmailing conservative America into paying him not to resign and leave the seat open for a liberal. Dateline Capitol Hill. Golly, guess which Supreme Court justice has been asked by seven congressmen to recuse himself from that ruling on Trump's imaginary presidential immunity? Why? Yes. Clarence Thomas. Good guess. What a coincidence. Because his wife was involved in that whole overthrowy the governmenty thing on Trump's behalf, I know. Ginny Thomas, she's everywhere. Congressman Hank Johnson signed this. Connolly is on it. Sheila Jackson Lee, Raskin. They sent it to Clarence in a letter. I'm just hoping that they folded up a fifty dollar bill inside that letter, cause you know what, Clarence's new RV, it ain't gonna pay for itself. <laughs> dateline new york city circling back to new york mayors haven't heard from mayor eric adams lately well he was on Picks on politics sunday with dan manorino on wpix tv channel 11 here and dan asked him something about what made 2023 the year it was the softbally of softball questions and the mayor said It's the city, because New York is the greatest place in the world, because you never know if today is going to be another 9-11. Wait,
0: what? When you look at the totality of the year, if you had to describe it and it's tough to do in one word, what would that word be? And tell me why.
1: Uh, New York. Uh, this is a place where every day you wake up, uh, you could experience everything from a plane crashing into our trade center to a, a person who's celebrating a new business that's open. Uh, this is a very, very complicated city. And that's why it's the greatest
2: city on the globe. You know, Mayor Adams, you should try to work that in to the next advertising campaign for us. You know, I love New York. 21st century version. It's fun city. Stop by. Maybe there'll be another terrorist attack while you're here. Paid for by the City of New York, Eric Adams, Mayor. I come to think of it, every once in a while, I think Mayor Adams is the terrorist attack that has been sent upon us for this century. Still to come on an all-new edition of Countdown, I was asked about him the other day, not Mayor Adams, this other gentleman. I was his intern, and that was in the year 1978, and by then he had already been in the business for 36 years. And I was asked about him in December 2023. That tells you what an impact he had on people. His story, next, in a new edition of Things I Promise Not to Tell. First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze worse wreaths across America. Yes, I'm slamming wreaths across America three days after 30,000 volunteers showed up at the National Cemetery at Arlington to take the wreaths they provide free and honor the fallen at the 260,000 graves in the National Cemetery. And they're just a fraction of the three million volunteers who decorated graves around the country this weekend past. This is not about the volunteers, nor the dead, nor the honoring. This is about the self-dealing. In the last six years, the amount of money Wreaths Across America has gotten has doubled to 30 million a year. Donors pay $17 for each wreath. About $5 of that goes to the civic and youth groups that help sell the wreaths. Works out to around a million and a half a year to those charities. And then about 21 and a half million a year. Three quarters of its annual revenue goes to the company that makes the wreaths, Worcester Wreath Company. Now it's quite a coincidence that the Worcester family still owns the Worcester Wreath Company when the executive director of Wreaths Across America is Karen Worcester, and three of the other members of the board of Wreaths Across America are also members of the Worcester family, and yes, that light bulb going off over your head, it's accurate. The same family which runs the charity is the same family which profits by selling the wreaths to the charity. $21 $21 million a year. And oh, by the way, shipping the wreaths, that's largely donated separately, so nobody's paying for that. And a lot of organizations that gadfly charities to make sure stuff like this doesn't happen say, yeah, this is happening. Oh, and this, this really tawdry look was first reported not by some left wing organization or mainstream media outlet, but by MilitaryTimes.com. The runner up, worser, right wing nut job Laura Lunier. Although I think she spells it L-O-O-M-E-R. Laura Lunier has a vague relationship with reality and with the truth. Her latest processing issue, as reported by America's leading George Santos scholar, Jacqueline Sweet, Loomer insists that a Foreign Agent Registration Act filing shows that the goofball staffer from Senator Cardin's office, who was caught on video in the Senate hearing room, uh, uh, receiving testimony that he's a foreign agent. He works for the Dominican Republic. Says so right here. It's a scandal. He could be blackmailed. Even though uh, Laura Lunier uh, doesn't explain that after that tape, I mean, what what's left to blackmail him with? Of course, it doesn't say he's a foreign agent. Laura Lunier is that most dangerous of combinations. Not too bright and not too worried about the truth. The form that she screenshotted and presented just a portion of shows that somebody who was a representative of the Dominican government sent the staffer an email. In fact, sent hundreds of Senate office staffers emails. That's all it says. The staffer is not the Dominican agent. He and hundreds of others were sent emails by a Dominican agent. Senate staffers get emails from representatives of other countries every every hour. That's what the system is for, to show when the other countries have reached out to Senate and House staff. In her race to try to stir up a scandal, this woman Loomer has made a fool out of herself again. But our winners, speaking of which, the worst, CPAC, and the guy who is still somehow its chairman nearly a year after he was engulfed in an actual scandal, the prophetically named Matt Schlapp. You may recall Matt Schlapp was sued for allegedly groping a male campaign staffer in October 2022, a staffer on the Senate campaign of Herschel Walker. Remember Herschel Walker? The Washington Post now reports that as part of discovery for his lawsuit, the alleged victim discovered and added to the lawsuit two prior incidents involving Matt Schlapp that the plaintiff says CPAC knew about and did nothing about an attempt to kiss an employee at a CPAC party in 2017. And last year, what sounds like an interesting night exploring conservative values, when Schlapp was accused of stripping to his underwear and rubbing up against another guy without the other guy's consent. And the new aspect of the suit is the claim that CPAC knew and did nothing and let Schlapp loose on an unsuspecting world. Matt. Hey, I was only talking about polling, Schlapp! Today's worst person in the world! This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures, and with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. All right, here's Bill Mazur. C1, December 19th. Three, two, one. 2, 1. And now to the number one story on the countdown. And I was literally asked about him the other day by somebody who did not know I knew him. And basically, I had one of those instantaneous moments that prove that Marcel Proust was right. If you try to remember something or someone from your youth, good luck. You might get a vague image. It might be right. It might be wrong. But if you are unexpectedly reminded of the moment or the person you can, for at least a brief instant, be transported back to them and to that time, as certainly as if you had a time machine. The man's name was spoken, and suddenly I was 19 years old again in a brand new seersucker suit, stepping in from the always broiling midday sun of midtown Manhattan, before the subways had air conditioners, and into the seductive cool of a television newsroom seven long hours before the broadcast was to begin when all the elements are in place except the panic and the rushing and the shouting. When you can still quietly discuss which story should be the lead on the newscast rather than uh, threatening to kill somebody who tried to stop you from going with the fire instead of the boating accident. When the film hasn't even been shot, let alone developed yet. And yes, in 1978, it was still film. They were just making the conversion from film to videotape, and they were using both. And half the stories could be instantly assembled, videotape, but the other half were maddeningly delayed until the kid ran the film to the lab in the basement and waited for it to be developed. And yeah, I was often that kid, and I think I might be the youngest person in this country who can say he ran the news film to the lab to be developed. Anyway, the man whose name was mentioned to me was the first to succeed on radio in a big city in this country by simply talking sports with listeners who phoned in. This was in Buffalo, New York in the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s, though he was not from there. Born in Kiev, emigrated to Brooklyn as an infant, pre-med at Michigan, a quick radio stint in Grand Rapids and the apt decision to not go by his given name of Morris Mazur then to the war, then to Buffalo, and the role of the sportscaster in town on TV, on radio, on the newscasts of the original Buffalo Bills of the minor league baseball Buffalo Bisons and the minor league hockey Buffalo Bisons. Bill, not Morris, Bill Mazur. Bill Mazur came home to New York City in the early 60s, and whether you like it or hate it, sports talk started with him, and it did not get much better than him. And what he did was not what you see now, where people like Stephen A. Smith and Chris Russo are paid to kill as much time as possible, where people like Skip Bayless are paid to turn anything into a controversy and anything good into something bad. Bill Mazur talked to people, knowledgeably, pleasantly, rarely raising his voice. He talked to athletes, other reporters, fans, and he had a singular advantage— Before Internet, before the sports history industry, hell, before the first edition of the Baseball Encyclopedia came out, Bill Mazur knew everything. This was largely because he had a virtually photographic memory. Bill could, of an instant, tell you who won the 100-meter dash at the 1932 Olympics in Los Angeles because he knew how all six finishers did, that it was Eddie Tolan, then Ralph Metcalf, then Jonath of Germany, then George Simpson, then Danny Joubert, and then the Japanese Yoshioka. And then he would mentioned that Eddie Tolan's cousin was the outfielder Bobby Tolan of the Cincinnati Reds. And before you knew it, he was asking you who had the greatest outfield arm ever. And I mention this because I can remember parts of the conversation I had with him that followed that question about the 1932 Olympic 100 meters. Bill Mazur saw the list of finishers once and remembered it for the rest of his life. Bill also did television. Network stuff. He worked NFL football for CBS. Sidelines, in the studio, in the scoreboard shows. He did hockey. He did color. He did play-by-play. He did local games of the New York Rangers. He did the network broadcast on CBS. He did the Knicks, the Rangers, the Nets, the Islanders, the local sports on Channel 5 here. And he had interns. And in the summer of 1978, at Channel 5, in my seersucker suit, I was one of them. Did he take me under his wing? Nah, that wasn't his style. Did he let me essentially produce his show? Choose the highlights for him? Watch as he showed me tricks on how to narrate those highlights? Ask me why he was including some stories and not others? Explain that it was okay to make a mistake as long as you corrected yourself as soon as you found out? nod with amusement but approval when the actual producer said that one night that Bill was going to take off, they should let me fill in for him? Yes to all that. He treated his interns like equals. And then there was that memory thing. They used to ask him a trivia question on the air every night, a question sent in by a viewer. Stump the amazing mazer in the commercial before the sports on the 10 o'clock news on Channel 5. And usually... He'd start to actually answer it reflexively, and the news anchor, John Rowland, would say, what are you doing? We want them to stay through the commercial to find out if you know the answer. And they'd both laugh, and it was obvious that Bill had started to answer so that nobody would ever think he was dashing off during the commercial to find the answer in a book somewhere. The newscaster, Rowland, even mocked the whole thing one night. This is from Eddie Spaghetti of Sheepshead Bay, amazing. On Sunday, April 22, 1979, the Rangers defeated the Philadelphia Flyers 6-0 at the Garden behind John Davidson's shutout to take a commanding three games to one lead in the Stanley Cup semifinals. By this point, Bill looked somewhere between amused and bemused. The question included the key details. What on earth could the question be? John Rowland resumed. 17,380 fans were at Madison Square Garden that night. Give their names and addresses. Bill Mazur did not even laugh. Aaron Albert A. 125 Bedford Avenue, apartment 4L, Brooklyn, New York. Aaron Albert C. 17 Golf Course Way, Nutley, New Jersey. Aaron Albert V., the director, faded to black. I saw him last around 2008 in the old Yankee Stadium, He was alone in the clubhouse and shaking his head slowly. I went up and said hello. My God, Keith, he said very quietly. Other than Jeter, I I don't know anybody here anymore. I told him the hell he didn't. He knew me. We talked for half an hour. I was his intern one summer, and the next July I was covering the same games and press conferences he was, and not once did he claim he discovered me. He introduced me to everybody I did not know. I had the good fortune to have this young man as my intern last year. I'm very proud of him. It was always like that. That conversation about the 1932 Olympic 100 meters, that was at his desk in the seductively cool newsroom at Channel 5 one evening when I was still his intern. And it ended with me saying, Dwight Evans of the Boston Red Sox had as good an outfield arm as I had ever seen, for whatever that was worth. And Bill said that was a good choice, but he didn't quite measure up to Merrill Hogue, Merrill Hogue in the 30s with the Yankees. I added, and the Browns. No, corrected Bill, just the Yankees. He played only for the Yankees. I was in a pickle. Bill Mazer was wrong. I stated my evidence. Bill, I have a, a 1940 baseball card of Merrill Hogue with the St. Louis Browns. Bill Mazer sighed. Must be a misprint, he said quietly. He then rose dramatically from his chair, cleared his throat, and as he reached to unlock the drawer that contained his copy of the finally published baseball encyclopedia, he was always an early adopter of new tech, he said to one of the producers, it's always like this with these kids. He thumbed through the book. Hogue. Here it is. 1936 Yankees, 1937 Yankees, 1938 Yankees, 1939 Browns. Bill went silent. He replaced his copy of the baseball encyclopedia and sat down slowly and silently. He did not look at me, but rather at the news producer. Stanley Pinsley was his name. And as he had taught me, Bill corrected himself. This, in turn, he finally said, this one is almost as good as me. That's all I really wanted. I had, unintentionally... Stumped the amazing Mazer. Bill Mazer died at Danbury, Connecticut in October of 2013 at the age of 92, and people are still asking me about him. Congratulations, Bill, and thank you. Done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Do me a solid and tell somebody who does not listen to listen. Countdowns come to you from the Vin Scully Studios at the Alderman Broadcasting Empire in New York. Spread the word about the podcast if you would. Facebook would be an especially fertile ground. Like I would know, I've never actually gone on Facebook countdown musical directors brian ray and john philip chanel arranged produced and performed most of our music mr chanel handled orchestration and keyboards mr ray was on the guitars bass and drums produced by tko brothers other music including some of the beethoven compositions were arranged and performed by the group no horns allowed sports music is courtesy of espn inc and it was written by mitch warren davis and we call it the olderman theme from espn 2 our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Howard Feynman. Everything else was pretty much my fault. That's well, Countdown for this, the 1078th day since Dementia J. Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Use the Insurrection Act against him and them while we still can. The next scheduled Countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Ulriman. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: At bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off, grand slam, or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call
2: 1-800-GAMBLER. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T E R M I N I X.com.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal
1: podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.